0: You're the interviewer, so you've got the power. All right, fine. I guess this is going to be a dictatorship. As long as it's benevolent. Sweet. All right. Yes, I have your best interest in heart, I promise. Oh, that's never gone poorly. Never. Not once in the entirety of human civilization. (laughs) Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Life in Overdrive, the podcast where I go out and talk to people with amazing, sometimes dangerous life experiences so you don't have to try them for yourself. Today's episode is not for the faint of heart. I sit down and talk to VJ Young, a person who, due to complications from the type of cancer he was diagnosed with, had to undergo major surgery with no anesthetic. If just the thought of that doesn't make you cringe, then I don't know what's going to do it. But before we get to that, world, what you doing, baby? Every time I flip on the news nowadays, I just get depressed. It seems like there's a school shooting over here, a terrorist attack over there. And what's worse is the people that try to take these horrible situations and twist them to fit their own political agenda. It seems like every time there's a school shooting, for example, all of a sudden everybody's talking about gun control. And it never seems like any side of the argument's even rational. You take one side and they're like, we want to take all the guns away from everyone. No one needs to have any guns. And then you look at the other side of the argument and it's, in my ideal world, my body would be made of guns, I would eat guns, I'd use my foot guns as a means of propulsion to hover from place to place. I'm not a politician here, but it seems to me like the real answer has to lie somewhere between those two things. I don't know. I don't have all of the answers, but... It seems like everybody needs to make the issue black and white and polarized. And so often, every issue in today's society is some shade of gray. And the solution that best fits it is probably some shade of gray. And it's just not the way our system works. And that kind of makes me sad. But sorry to drag you all down there. I mean, this show is supposed to be fun and not make you all sad and pouty. So let's get on to the Sunshine and Rainbows interview about going under a horribly invasive surgical procedure with zero anesthetic to dull the pain. Enjoy you guys.
1: February of 2014, I had a severe cold, which uh, after the cold passed, some shortness of breath and difficulty climbing stairs and physical exertion and all of that lingered. So I thought I just had bronchitis. So I went to my local urgent care, which for those of you who don't live in a country that has urgent care facilities, they're basically just a standalone emergency room. I went to my local urgent care, and they diagnosed me with bronchitis without taking any x-rays or running any tests. They just listened to my symptoms and said, oh, that sounds like bronchitis. Here, have some
0: antibiotics. I mean, to be fair, it sounds exactly like bronchitis, but you'd think you'd at least do a couple tests first. Exactly. And I had all the symptoms of bronchitis,
1: and those were the only symptoms I had. So I was on the um, antibiotics for a couple of weeks and the symptoms were just getting worse and worse. And finally, one night, I lay flat on my back and stopped breathing.
0: Right, that's not a good sign. It
1: really isn't. So after that, I went to my local hospital, and they actually ran some x-rays and went, Oh, okay, you have a shadow near your lungs. We need to get you in for a CT scan, stat. Jeez. So they ran me to the CT scan, where they ran into an interesting problem. Because the CT scanner that they had... You had to lie flat on your back for them to scan you.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Which uh, is typically fine for most people, but you happen to be in a situation where if you lie on your back, you stop breathing. Precisely. So they
1: sort of had me lay flat on my stomach instead, which they said would m- might
0: skew the results. <laughs> so, so the results of this test may not actually wind up mattering at all. But they wound up catching it, and they said, that looks
1: like a cancerous mass, mm-hmm. because apparently they no longer say tumor. And, uh, to, to reiterate, this was in your lung, right? This The mass was in my pericardial cavity, which is the chest cavity that contains the heart and the lungs.
0: Okay, gotcha.
1: It was wrapped around my heart and around my trachea and pushing against my both lungs. And it was actually pinching both my trachea and my vena cava, which is the vein that brings blood from your head and arms to the heart. So hence the pounding heartbeat, shortness of breath, whatnot. But because it was pinching so many of the passageways and things in my chest, and it was also gripping my heart, it was causing what's called a pericardial effusion to collect, which is fluid around the heart, which is very, very dangerous, because if you get too much fluid around the heart, the heart works too hard to pump, and it actually stops pumping, which is not a good thing.
0: Right. From the, from the one or two health and biology classes I've had, that, that definitely sounds like something you wouldn't want to be going on in your body. I'm not an expert, but it seems bad. So that
1: night, this is at my local hospital, and uh, they told me that their thoracic surgeon, the chest surgeon, wasn't in that night, and that if they wanted to operate on me, it would have to be the next morning. And they asked if I was okay with spending the night under observation or if I wanted to be rushed to to the Cleveland Clinic, which, as I said in my article, is one of the most advanced hospitals in the United States and one of the top cancer and thoracic surgery h- hospitals in the world. And at the time I was they weren't really making a big deal of it because they that's apparently the mindset today because as soon as you say the word cancer people start freaking out. So they try to sort of underplay it as much as possible. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'll I'll spend the night here and you can operate on me in the morning. Well, that night as I was sleeping my blood pressure just absolutely dropped. And apparently the standard operating procedure when that happens is for a nurse to lay you flat on your back. Oh, God. So this nurse, the the night nurse, comes in, lays me flat on my back. Now, keep in mind, I'm wearing this bright red bracelet that says do not lay patient flat on his back. They've posted a sign at the foot of my bed that says do not lay patient flat on his back. They've
0: posted a sign on my door. Giant warning signs that say do not lay patient flat on his back. And The nurse is like... But standard procedure. <laughs> so she runs in. She just
1: the ECG was going wild. So she just ran in and started operating on reflex and lay me flat on my back.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, to, to be fair, in situations like that, you probably operate on instinct. She probably just exactly. saw a patient in trouble and was like, oh, I need to do this thing really quick. Yeah.
1: And that's, you know, what what you do. So then I lay flat on my back. I stopped breathing woke up started having a panic attack because i can't breathe and i have an anxiety disorder and then another nurse runs in yells didn't you look at his fucking chart and then sat me up again
0: <laughs> i'm just i'm just picturing you like limp like a rag doll and these two nurses are jerking you back and forth and pushing you around and stuff while you're not breathing that's
1: basically what happened and then as soon as i got my breath back and could talk i said please send me the, to the cleveland clinic now <laughs> So they took my bi-ambulance up to the clinic where they immediately got me in for a whole bunch of tests and uh, a bunch of doctors met to plan my surgery and my treatment and all of that. And that's when the weirdness started. The weirdness? The weirdness. Now keep in mind, at this point it is past midnight on April 1st.
0: Okay, so it's April Fool's Day. It's April Fool's Day.
1: And as my doctors are talking and uh, going... Back and forth between wh- what techniques they should use and what techniques they shouldn't use. Eventually, they settle on a plan, which was to open me up and try to relieve the pressure around my heart so that they can perform a biopsy and get a part of the mass that they can test and determine what kind of cancer treatment I should have. Because at this point, they know it's cancer, but they don't know what kind. Now, the problem is that because of the location of the mass and the size of the mass, they could not intubate me. They couldn't get the breathing tube past the mass. On top of that, they were worried that any anesthetic they gave me would stop my heart and lungs from functioning, which, as we've mentioned before, is a bad thing.
0: Why Why was this a concern versus a typical patient? Like, why, why did they think that with you maybe it would stop that from happening?
1: Uh, because of the size and location of the mass. The mass was wrapped around my heart and squeezing again. Against my lungs, and because of all that pressure and all of that trauma that I was already experiencing, the um, the anesthetics they would have given me would have weakened my heart and lungs to the point where they may have stopped pumping. Uh, But the main concern was the lack of intubation, because the intubation is what keeps your heart and lungs moving. So keep in mind, it's April first. I've barely slept. And my doctor comes in and, with a completely straight face, tells me that he's going to have to open me up and spread two of my ribs apart while I am awake and unanesthetized.
0: <laughs> did your mind immediately go to the fact that it was April 1st?
1: It did. <laughs> my first question was, Is today April Fool's Day? <laughs> to which my doctor replied, Yes, it is. And no, this is not a prank. <laughs>
0: So how do you react to, to when the idea actually sets in and you realize that he's serious? What, what is your first thought about that?
1: Well, because of who I am, my initial thought was just, wow, this is just such a ridiculously hilarious situation. <laughs> I don't even know how to parse this. But my initial thought was to laugh it off, and then it really set in, and I got that horror and that, oh, shit, this is going to hurt quite a bit.
0: this is about to be really bad shit i can't i can't even imagine staring down something like that that's crazy
1: well throughout my life every time i've been faced with adversity i've dealt with it by joking about it so throughout this whole ordeal i'm cracking jokes i'm making the nurses crack up because it's the only way i'm keeping from cracking up so they eventually after all the planning and talking with me and talking with my family and talking with my in-laws and all of that they wheeled me in for uh, to prep me for surgery and while shaving my chest one of the nurses asked if there was any music that I that calmed me down because music has had a proven effect of reducing pain so uh, I told her that when I get very anxious or very over emotional or whatnot I'll listen to opera and my go-to opera is mozart's don giovanni it's my favorite opera and i told her my favorite aria was uh, La, La Mano, which is a duet between the don and a woman named zerlina as he woos her immediately after her wedding and then gets cockblocked by her best friend <laughs> people say opera's highbrow right and so she's shaving my chest, and I say this, and one of the doctors who's standing by, because there were just so many doctors, he spoke up and said, oh, I have Don Giovanni in my office. And he sent
0: a nurse to get it. (laughs) I think it's hilarious that one of the doctors just happened to have Don Giovanni on hand. Yeah, so it was just a, a really
1: wonderful coincidence that he just happened to have Don Giovanni on CD in his office. So a nurse went to get that, and they put it on as they started operating me and just by another amazing coincidence, the most painful part of the procedure when they were spreading two of my ribs apart, that aria came on. <laughs> and were you just
0: were you just focusing on that the whole time? Um, not the whole time.
1: But for a lot of it, I was focusing on the music because, like I said, it's very soothing.
0: Now, the the weird
1: thing about the surgery, the, they started with uh, what's called a local anesthetic, which numbs the skin and the layer of muscle underneath. It's injected right into your muscle, but it doesn't penetrate past the muscle. Getting cut with local anesthetic is the weirdest sensation I've ever felt because it only cuts out the pain. It doesn't cut out... The feeling. And everyone I've spoken to about this has said, yeah, that's, I know, right? It, it's the weirdest thing ever. And it's so hard to describe. The, the closest I've come to describing it is that it feels like someone is poking you very hard, but not hard enough to hurt, and then drawing a line across you slowly. And where their finger passes, there's this odd sensation of release. And then it's cold as parts of you that were never meant to feel it feel air for the first time.
0: You know, the the first time we talked about this, I had no context to understand what you were talking about with this particular thing. But about six months ago I sliced the shit out of my index finger with a kitchen knife and I had to get like four stitches. And they gave me local anesthetic in the tip of my index finger. And like while he was stitching it together, I didn't feel any pain whatsoever, but I could feel the sensation of the stitches moving through my finger, and it was the weirdest thing in the world. I totally get it now.
1: Exactly. It's almost ethereal. It's just a really weird sensation.
0: You're not used to uh, your sense of touch being stimulated underneath your outer layer of skin. It's really weird.
1: Exactly. So that happened, and then as they got to the part where they spread two of my ribs apart, the, it got to Laci da Rem Lomano, which was, it, it, at, in the moment, it struck me as just a really funny coincidence, so I started laughing.
0: I mean, you'll have to forgive me here, but I'm not totally up to snuff on my Don Giovanni, so can you elaborate a little bit?
1: That's the aria in which the Don seduces a bride immediately after her wedding. Oh, Okay. And, and then gets cock-blocked by her best friend. Right. So they start spreading two of my ribs open. Uh, I'm in tremendous pain, and I'm laughing and screaming simultaneously, pretty much. And then the anesthesiologist, whose name is Sergei, he sticks his head up under the blanket that's covering my face so that I can't see what's going on. And he started talking me through pain management techniques. Okay, and Sergey is interesting. Uh, if you're ever, if you've ever seen the movie or the the TV show Firefly, I have. Sergey really reminded me of the character of Adelaide Niska, this grandfatherly Eastern European man with of uh, an almost cloyingly sweet voice. Oh boy. <laughs> His voice was like the best parts of Morgan Freeman, Bob Ross, and Mr. Rogers all wrapped in a Ukrainian accent. (laughs) Uh, He was bald uh, and about five foot nothing, this wonderfully kind, gentle man. And he starts talking to me through these pain management techniques. And I don't remember a word he said, but I remember his voice and how soothing it was. And with him in one ear and Mozart in the other, I stopped screaming, got my breathing under control, and made it through the rest of the surgery without any incident.
0: That's so weird to me because, like, it's weird to me that you would um, fixate on and remember the sound of his voice. Because, like, whenever uh, you, you haven't seen somebody in a very long time, whenever a close person to you dies, like, the first thing that you forget is what their voice sounded like. So that's really weird to me, that that's the one thing that you remember. That's strange. It is,
1: but I think part of it is that my mind had to latch onto something, Mm -hmm. so it latched onto the thing that was most humanizing.
0: That's a good way to look at it. That makes sense. I also feel like you probably weren't capable of retaining the content of what he was saying, because I feel like in that sort of situation, any sort of complex concept goes out the window. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I couldn't really think about anything outside of what was happening to me immediately. And uh, the the weird thing is, um, one of the first things that you forget about something like this is the actual pain. Your brain has filters to block out sensation of pain. You can remember what you were feeling during the pain. Mm-hmm. You can remember your emotions, but you can't remember the pain itself. Wow, It's just a weird thing about the human brain. That happens below a certain threshold. above that threshold, you retain the memory of pain for about a month or two after. So every time you think back on it, you feel sort of phantom pain in that area. And then you can retain that phantom pain for a lifetime, but at a much reduced degree. So even now, talking about it, I'm feeling a little bit of pain in my chest.
0: Mm-hmm. But I'm, a- I'm assuming it's nothing like what you were experiencing in the moment, though.
1: Oh, no, nothing like it. It's phantom.
0: So, and I mean, based on what you just said, this is probably... Impossible to a degree, but can you kind of take me to the moment and explain what you were feeling as they started to spread your ribs and do the the part of the procedure that was not affected at all by the little bit of anesthesia that you were given? Well, um,
1: it's hard to describe because the the English language contains a word that is perfectly descriptive of pain like this. It's excruciating. Mm-hmm. Literally, it means the kind of pain that you experience. While on the cross, that's where the word comes from, excruciate. Really, most of me was just trying desperately not to black out from it and trying not to scream and failing. (laughs) And then that little part of me in the back of my mind that was going, wow, this is kind of a funny coincidence that this aria came on right now was laughing. And so my screams were sort of... Uh, halting every now and then as i tried to laugh while screaming and it it was bizarre to say the least and then sergey started talking to me and all of a sudden the pain was still there but it didn't matter i still felt the pain but it didn't really have any connection to what was going on in my head because sergey was pulling me away from it
0: it's it's amazing to me all of the all of the little defense ne- mechanisms that our bodies have that we don't even really wind up using on a daily basis so we tend to not think about them but like just the ability of the human brain to in situations like yours completely focus on something else so that you don't have to deal with the horrible experience that's going on oh absolutely that that's fascinating to me
1: there are a lot of anecdotes of like soldiers in the battlefield going through battlefield medicine and having like limbs sawn off and thinking about home or thinking about that time when they were little and playing on the tire swing because it's just something else to think about. Sergey was giving me that touchstone and letting me think about something other than what was going on.
0: It's uh, it's also impressive to me that the people at this hospital were trained well enough to deal with this situation. Like, it seems like something that wouldn't come up that frequently, so I wouldn't typically expect them to know what to do. Do you, do you even have any idea how many other people have undergone a procedure similar to that? Zero. None.
1: My... Thoracic surgeon uh, Dr. Shivaraja actually had an academic paper published in a very prominent medical journal because of this surgery, <laughs> it was highly experimental and they had no idea going into it if they would be able to relieve the pressure on my heart and if they would be able to get a piece of the mass so that they could run a biopsy. And they managed to succeed in both of those. But going into the, into it, they had no idea. So yeah, th- this procedure has never been performed. However, before the discovery of anesthesia and all of that, basically all surgeries were performed like this. It was just bizarre that they had to go back to the old ways while using modern uh, micro-instruments and things like that.
0: Well, I mean, that's that's the thing, though, right? The the invention of anesthesia is one of the things that's made medicine advance to the point that it is today, because before then, you couldn't just go poking around inside someone, because they would be fully conscious and could feel everything. So, like, once, once anesthesia was invented, the medicine itself advanced by leaps and bounds almost immediately after that, because all of a sudden, you could do things to save a patient that were otherwise impossible because they would be aware of everything that was going on. Absolutely. So, I mean, while, while yes, almost every surgery prior to the invention of anesthesia was done that way, I think those surgeries looked wildly different from the surgeries that we're doing today. <laughs> definitely and the the idea of a modern surgery being performed that way with no and major anesthesia like that i mean you had you had the the surface the muscular anesthesia but with, with nothing to actually put you out a major surgery that's like going straight into your body cavity that man i can't even wrap my head around it that's insane neither could
1: many of the doctors <laughs> Keep in mind, be- between the time I got to the Cleveland Clinic and the time I actually had surgery, I got there about three in the morning. Mm-hmm. My surgery happened at five in the evening because all of that intervening time was doctors arguing. <laughs> we can't do this. No. We can't get in there and relieve the pressure until you do a biopsy. We can't do a biopsy until you relieve the
0: pressure. <laughs> Wait, wait. None of the di- none of the discussion had to do with you being awake during the whole thing. It was all about the procedure. A lot of it had to do with that too. <laughs>
1: Most of it was just over which procedure had to be done.
0: What did what What did the doctors say to you or to each other about you being awake during the procedure? Well,
1: a lot of the doctors were terrified, mm. and for good reason. If if the surgery went south, they were possibly on the hook for malpractice. Honestly, I wouldn't have sued them anyway, because I recognized that it was such a bizarre circumstance. So a lot of them were visibly frightened. Some of them were just very concerned. The primary surgeon, Dr. Raja... Uh, he was absolutely cool as a cucumber and had wonderful bedside manner and explained everything in detail. It, it took about an hour for him to complete the explanation of what they were going to do. It, it took him longer to explain the surgery than it took them to actually perform it. <laughs> um, and because of that, I went into the surgery somewhat optimistic, even though I knew it was very experimental and there was possibility of failure. Uh, he had been so knowledgeable and so forthright that I was perfectly op- optimistic going into it.
0: No, I mean, this was obviously ultimately your decision. So beforehand, were you like weighing the options? Was it a thing where it was like, well, I'm going to die if I don't have this procedure done? Or did you just not even think about that at all and go Wh- whatever you have to do to save my life?
1: They did tell me that there were other procedures, but they would be more risky. And they outlined what those were. Uh, th- they did tell me that if I didn't have one of these procedures, I would die. So I was going into it with the what maybe will be, but they made sure to inform me. And because I had that information, I was uh, I felt confident that I was making an informed decision.
0: So take me to just after you've woken up from the surgery like what what kind of state of mind are you in afterwards
1: i don't remember the entire day after the surgery wow because as soon as they wheeled or as soon as they closed me up they put me on a fentanyl pump ah and
0: fentanyl is a
1: wonderful wonderful drug
0: fentanyl makes all your worries go away (laughs) when prescribed and every, everything else, the entire day, goes away. For anyone
1: who doesn't know what fentanyl is, fentanyl is a painkiller that is about a hundred times more effective than heroin. Or no, 20 times stronger than heroin, a hundred times stronger than, um... Oh, what's the other one? Morphine? Morphine, yes. So fentanyl is about 20 times stronger than heroin, and about a hundred times stronger than morphine. And they gave me a button. That would give me more fentanyl when I pushed it.
0: (laughs) Basically, they're just like, look, you've been through a harrowing experience, but whatever the fuck you need, just take it. Take it. Basically. So
1: (laughs) that entire first day, I have one memory of it. And that is of holding my rel- my one week old niece mm-hmm. and you know that's a pretty powerful memory, so I remember it. but uh the next day is what I really remember and mostly the whole day I was just feeling relief that the the procedure went well, that they were able to uh, meet both of their goals
0: i mean the the place that my mind immediately goes to is after experiencing something horribly traumatic like that that that, uh, an amount of pain that i can't even pretend to have any sort of basis to understand i my, my worry is like afterwards maybe there's some kind of residual psychological damage that you need to deal with or something like that was that just not an issue for you
1: that was a concern of the doctors and they did have a counselor on hand to talk to me but um i've always had a fairly high tolerance for pain and in this case I had such a great support network, and they made sure that I understood what I was getting into before I was wheeled in for surgery that it really wasn't much of a concern. I didn't ha- suffer any PTSD or any residual psychological damage from it. It did hurt when I coughed <laughs> uh, or
0: laughed. <laughs> I love how that's the worst complaint you have after the procedure. You're like, eh, it hurts a little bit when I cough, I guess. I uh, can't really complain.
1: <laughs> well, luckily, they only had to spread two of my ribs. They didn't have to crack the sternum. If they had, then it would have been a months long ordeal of recovery. As it was, it was practically in and out. I was gone within the week. But no, part of, I, I think part of why I psychologically recovered so well was that my brother and his wife brought their kids to visit and having a well then 3-year-old and less than 2-week-old uh playing with me
0: helped i can see that 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 actually makes a lot of sense
1: my wife said that when she was walking in with joseph my nephew she looked at him and said okay joseph we're going into the icu and you have to be very quiet and he looked at her and said I
0: know I got my sister at a hospital. <laughs> kids are so adorable, man. Look, we got we got my sister at a hospital. You think I don't know this shit already? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I love how I love how little kids that are like in in the range of like 3 to 6 think that they're like the world's authority on anything they've experienced before. It's great.
1: Yeah. Oh, one funny thing. Um we used my niece and nephew as a life hack. Okay. Do tell. The ICU, the the intensive care unit, has very strict visiting hours. Right. Which we completely got around. Okay, how'd you do this? Basically if we wanted to stay a little longer, we just made sure that those two kids were there. And all of the nurses were too busy oohing and awing and cooing over the kids to <laughs> kick them out. They didn't want to kick out these little kids. <laughs> and, like, if my wife wanted to um, grab a bite from the nurse's lounge, my mother would run interference and just talk about the kids to the nurses.
0: <laughs> so now... If I understand correctly, this this procedure wasn't wasn't to totally excise the tumor. It was just to get a piece for the biopsy, right?
1: Correct. Uh, they just wanted to get a very small piece, like. Hardly even noticeable, just to run some tests on it to find out what kind of cancer it was, which, as it turns out, was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And because it was non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, they were able to completely remove the mass with just uh, chemotherapy and radiation. They didn't have to actually carve out any pieces of the mass.
0: Yeah, as as far as cancer diagnoses go, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas. Is... I mean, cancer is always bad, but that one's not too bad.
1: Yes. Um, over the past 20 years or so, there's been a big push to cure the, lim- the blood cancers, lim- Hodgkin's lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and leukemia. And leukemia still has a ways to go, but the lymphomas have come a long way. And right now, Hodgkin's lymphoma is one of the easiest internal cancers to cure, and non-Hodgkin's is a close second or third. It's much easier than most other cancers Uh, it responds well to chemo and radiation um so they were able to get rid of the entire mass just with chemo and radiation and as of two weeks from now from time of recording i will have been cancer free for one year
0: oh man that's that's awesome to hear um, especially, like, personally, I've lost a couple of important people in my life to different types of cancer, so it's a, it always lifts my spirits a little bit to hear a story like yours. It really does.
1: Oh, definitely. Um, and now that I've been through it, it lifts my spirits to hear of other people who have survived cancer. Um, it it's one of those experience that you, experiences that you never want to share with others, but when you find out that you have, it brings you closer together.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't, I can't even imagine going through an ordeal like what you've been through. I do, I do remember from our last conversation, you mentioned that afterwards it had changed your overall uh, outlook on pain, like that you, it had affected your pain tolerance after that.
1: The effect to my pain tolerance was actually fairly short-lived. For a few months afterwards, I was much less susceptible to pain. I would stub my toe and hardly even notice. Now, I feel the pain, but it just doesn't matter because I know I've been through worse.
0: (laughs) It's like on the line graph of pain versus time of your life, there's just this giant blip now, and everything that doesn't get (laughs) close, your brain's just like, meh, doesn't matter anymore. Exactly. (laughs) It's also really weird that, like, You didn't really notice the pain at all at first, and then that sort of just tapered off, and now you actually feel it again. That's really... Dude, the human brain's so weird.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm no neurologist, so I can't explain why, but... Yeah, apparently the the brain has ways of filtering out pain, and then it goes back to normal, because pain is very important. Without pain, you wouldn't know when you've caused damage to your body.
0: So... Bear in mind, I say this as someone who does not have a huge understanding of the neurological makeup of the human brain, but knowing that and knowing that you had a decreased sensation of pain afterwards, it makes me wonder if the pain that you experienced during the surgery was still not as bad as the pain really was, and your brain was filtering some of it out. I have no idea. I have no idea either. (laughs) It's just like, it, it would make sense and i'm completely speculating at this point it it would make it would make sense for the brain to have almost like a uh almost like a breaker switch in your house like whenever the pain sensors get <laughs> overloaded it throws that switch and you 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 max out at a certain point but i have no idea if that's that's a... really good analogy <laughs> i'm a writer i have them from time to time but <laughs> but um it would make sense if that was how it worked i have no idea if that's actually the case or not I'm not sure if you can interview a neurologist. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's write that down. Neurologist. Okay. <laughs> now, see, you're just you're just giving me all sorts of questions for when that eventually happens. But no, uh, throughout the course of this podcast, I am planning on having a variety of scientists come on and stuff. A neurologist isn't a bad idea to have on here, and that definitely seems like a good a good question to ask him. I can just be like, "Hey, I talked to this guy who." went through surgery without anesthetic and at that point he's gonna stop me and be like are you fucking serious what (laughs) (laughs) but no that's it's probably something i should ask a neurologist you're right longest way of getting to that realization i've ever heard of but you're right now i i do
1: have another funny story about this experience and pain sure go ahead after I got out of the ICU, they put me in what's called the step down unit. Mm-hmm. And while I was in the step down unit, they stepped down my medications and uh, the painkillers and all of that. And my first day off of the fentanyl was horrible. I was in a lot of pain just constantly. And it wasn't until about halfway through the day that I found out that I had to ask for painkillers when I needed them. <laughs> Because a nurse came in and noticed that I was in a lot of pain, and she said, do you need any painkillers? And I said, yes. And she said, okay, uh, if you need them, just ask. And I said, please. And she said, okay, uh, on a scale from 1 to 10, where 10 is the worst pain you've ever felt, what's this?
0: This is a terrible question to ask someone who just underwent surgery without anesthetic, because I think any pain that you encounter in the regular world is like a 2 on that scale. Exactly. <laughs>
1: so on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the worst pain you've ever felt, how does this rate? And I said, uh, 2? <laughs> she said, okay, um, we normally don't give you painkillers unless it's over a 6 or a 7. Are you sure you need them? <laughs> and at that point, I was just whimpering. I, didn't, I couldn't even answer her. Okay. So she pulled up my chart and looked at it for a minute and then went... Her, her face just went completely white and she said oh oh god <laughs> yeah let me get you some oxies. and she ran out the room returned moments later with two oxycodones <laughs>
0: and gave them to me and said okay from now on just say seven." <laughs> And that's the moral to take away from this story, kids. If you ever want to get pain medication out of your doctor, tell them your pain's at least a seven. (laughs) That's hilarious, though. Oh, God! I'm just, like, picturing her bolting out of the room as soon as she sees that to get you pain medication as fast as humanly possible.
1: I I cannot praise the nurses at the Cleveland Clinic more. They are fantastic. They they took good care of me, especially after the step-down unit, I went into the um, oncology building, uh, oncology being the study and treatment of cancer. And there I was in a room on my own. I didn't have any roommates. And there was one nurse who was with me for three days, and she was there from eight in the morning to eight in the evening while nine months and two weeks pregnant
0: Oh my god. What?
1: She gave birth the day before I was released from the hospital. She was treating me until she went to maternity. Oh my god! And she was running circles around the other nurses. I, I asked her, why on earth are you still working when you're clearly this far pregnant? And she replied, well, if I'm already here, I don't have to get in the car. <laughs>
0: I mean, I guess if you could go into labor at any moment, what better place to be than a hospital, right? Yeah,
1: and so she actually went into labor um, one of the days she was with me. She wasn't in my room, obviously, when she went into labor. or That would have traumatized me further. <laughs> but she went into into labor while at work, and they just put her in a wheelchair and wheeled her down to maternity.
0: Oh, man that's amazing
1: yeah the nurses at the cleveland clinic are fantastic the doctors there are wonderful and i'm starting to sound like an advertisement but i really can't praise them enough And they
0: they didn't even pull you back and forth like a rag doll once yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) oh man i can't like i'm still just i we've even had a conversation about this before months ago and i still just can't wrap my head around it i can't get past like fuck jesus christ what (laughs) that is the general reaction (laughs) well it's just it's such an outlier of a situation because you don't really hear about things like this happening ever yeah i do believe we have enough for the podcast however i do want to say here at the end first of all thanks thanks for agreeing to do this i really appreciate it i'm really glad to hear that you're almost a year cancer free that's amazing and I hope that you continue the rest of your life cancer-free, because that would be even more amazing. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this, because this story's awesome.
1: It really is. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm always glad to share a story. Yeah, of course.
0: I should be more simple than- So that was my interview with VJ about his procedure and I've got to be honest with you guys, I'm still, I am still, I just got finished editing it and still my mind goes to that place of what even just, what, what, no, fuck, I can't even, I, I have no frame of reference to even gauge the pain that he must have experienced and no... No way to even understand what he had to have gone through. But, um, I have to say, my favorite thing about that interview is the image that he made me picture when, uh, the doctors were starting to operate on him. I just, I have this very clear mental image of just a pack of doctors descending on him like wolves as he lays splayed open on the table with his innards exposed and in the background, Don Giovanni is just playing like it, it just seems like a scene out of stephen king's kingdom hospital mixed with some sort of lovecraftian sense of horror it's a scene that wouldn't be out of place in a horror movie just with the actual sound of the scene turned down so you can't hear anything that's going on the screams and wails coming out of his mouth and his face twisted in agony are just muted, and all you can hear is the comparatively peaceful sound of Don Giovanni juxtaposed over top of it. And speaking of sound juxtaposition, I'm sorry about the sound quality of VJ's audio. The reason for that was we had a bit of a recording snafu, and there was no way for us to do it other than me recording his end of the Skype conversation we were having on my end. And he was talking into a phone, and it was just the only way it was going to happen. And I had to make a choice, and that was not have this episode altogether, or deal with the less than preferable audio quality, but still get this awesome story to you guys. And I figured that having something at least was probably better than nothing. So again, I'm sorry about the audio quality on this one, that's not going to be a running thing, but... I figured it was worth it just because this story was so amazing. And now we've reached the point in the podcast where I tell you guys, if you like this, if you want to see more content like this, then please rate, like, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes. All of that stuff helps so much. It it helps uh, get the podcast out there to more listeners. It helps us to get advertisement so that we can get better equipment to make the podcast sound better, so that I can afford to spend more time working on the podcast instead of doing projects that maybe aren't as entertaining for you guys, or myself even. So anything you can do in that regard helps, and I would greatly appreciate it. Now we're going to ride this podcast out on the ending part of Dead Town, which you guys didn't hear last week, and it's pretty awesome, so I hope you enjoy it. I will see you guys in a week for more podcasts. Take care, everyone.